Chapter 14 of The Mute Singer by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 14 The Great World Again. Maitre Bougeot lost no time in communicating the glad tidings to Mademoiselle de Saint-Amour. An enthusiastic letter of congratulation from Honorine greeted Sylvie a few hours later, a letter filled with expressions of wonder and delight at the sudden restoration of the young singer's voice, replete with pathetic lamentation over the late interruption of intercourse, and closing with fond anticipations of that link so mysteriously broken would now happily be cemented. Sylvie read the bomb-dropping lines with palpitating heart. If she resumed her position before the public, would she not naturally be brought into contact with Mademoiselle de Saint-Omar and her brother? Would she not again see him whom wisdom bade her banish from sight? Would she not again hear the soul-stirring voice which set all the finest chords within her vibrating, and yet would not the icy barrier of circumstance loom up between them as high, as wide, and as freezing as ever? Would she not need greater strength than heretofore in resisting temptation which she could no longer fly? Would she have courage to stand in its very midst and combat its assaults? These reflections were interrupted by the incoherent ravings of her father. The day after his accident, Monsieur de la Roche became dangerously ill. Violent mental excitement and the injury his head had sustained produced a fever strongly resembling that by which his daughter had been attacked. We have already said that Dr. Suvestra was a youthful partner of a distinguished physician who allowed his juvenile assistants to study their profession by practicing among the poor. Dr. Janine, however, accompanied Dr. Suvestra when he next visited Monsieur de la Roche. But the hasty manner in which the elder physician examined the patient and the eagerness with which he turned to Sylvie betrayed that she was the magnet which had drawn him thither. The extraordinary recovery of her vocal powers in singing, while she remained unable to use her voice in speaking, had doubtless awakened his medical interest and curiosity. It became worth his while to investigate a case so remarkable. He pronounced it very rare, but not without parallel. Several instances of the kind were on record, but this was the first which had occurred within his own cognizance. Sylvia responded upon her tablets to his numerous inquiries. After a while, he requested her to endeavor to speak. The attempt proved her total inability. He unceremoniously desired her to sing. Immediately her rich rolling voice filled the chamber with the solemn grandeur of the Sabbat Mater. At the first note, her father, who for some time had been tossing about, talking wildly, and making vehement efforts to rise, sank gently back. A soft smile played over his handsome features, and he lay serenely still and silent. Sylvie noted the change, and as she ceased singing, 
wrote upon her tablets, Is my singing likely to disturb my father? No, replied Dr. Janine. If we may judge from its present calming effect, it will benefit him. You have a most wonderful organ, mademoiselle, the most remarkable I have ever heard. It is fortunate for yourself and the public that the injury to your vocal cords does not extend to that portion used in singing. These words were accompanied by a low bow for Sylvie's superlative talent, and the dignified simplicity of her manner awakened an instinctive reverence. Dr. Sylvestre, who had long experienced and struggled to conceal, a warm admiration for his quondam patient became highly elated by his superior's complimentary recognition of her genius and attraction. It removed the dread of being charged with a youthful folly unworthy of a grave disciple of Aesculapius, if the doctor revealed his true sentiments. His usually pompous and consequential demeanor melted away, and had Sylvie been less engrossed by her father's condition, she could not have failed to remark the denouement of his manner, the unusual animation with which he conversed, and the flattering deference of his tone. He completely laid aside the solemn air assumed in his capacity of medical adviser, and became the agreeable guest, the genial friend, the incipient lover. He lingered for some time after Dr. Janine took his leave, and would not have torn himself away had not Sylvie's abstracted look and absent responses betrayed her wandering thoughts. The door had hardly closed upon him when Sylvie opened the piano, and with her head turned towards her father that she might watch his countenance, her fingers once more magnetized the old keys and her sympathetic voice gushed forth in thrilling sweetness. The same look of placid happiness that had stolen over her father's lineaments before now came to them again. His restless movements ceased, his moans were hushed, the widely opened lids fell softly over his two brilliant eyes. That he recognized the well-known but long silent tones was doubtful. That he listened with intense pleasure was certain. She was still singing when Maitre Beaujol entered. He noiselessly approached, and, almost holding his breath, took a seat beside her. She greeted him with a bow of welcome, and sang on. At the conclusion of the strain, he said, in a voice hoarse with emotion, "'It was no dream, then?' "'No dream,' replied Sylvie's speaking eyes. "'And you will be able to sing on Saturday?' he asked. Sylvie bowed her head, and took his shriveled hand in hers, and lifted it to her lips. "'I saw Monsieur Legrand last evening,' said Bougeot. "'He was overjoyed at the intelligence I brought. His next concert will take place at the close of the week. Your reappearance before the public will be made the principal feature. But we have decided that you shall be tested in only one piece.' and I have selected that inspired strain by which you electrified us all yesterday. Do you like my choice? Sylvie's smile of assent signified that she could not have made a better. An exclamation from her mother now called the young girl to her side. The sick man made a violent effort to leap out of the bed, 
and the feeble arms of his wife and daughter could but ill restrain him. Bougeot came to their aid, and with some difficulty succeeded in forcing the struggling sufferer back upon his pillow. This will not do, remarked the musician, panting from his exertions. You need masculine help. Matteo has strong arms in spite of his deformity, and he is faithfulness personified. We must secure his assistance. Neither Sylvie nor her mother objected, and Bougeot went in search of the cripple. Soon after, Matayu made his appearance by the sick bed, with a visage only too beaming to be in keeping with the office he was commissioned to fill. Yet how could he look grave when a felicity he had never dared to picture in his wildest dreams had been granted him? He would hourly see the object of his adoration. He would hear, unchided, that delicious voice to which he had so often tremblingly listened by stealth. Better still, he would be allowed to serve Sylvie. In assisting to watch over her father, he would spare her pain and fatigue. Could his happiness reach a higher climax? Dr. Suvestra came daily, and his visits were of much longer duration than heretofore. After a few moments devoted to his patient, he invariably took his seat beside the young maiden, and, playfully pointing to her tablets, started some topic of general interest, which drew forth a reply. He had quickly discovered her taste, and her keen enjoyment of literature and art always afforded agreeable subjects of conversation. Sylvie had perhaps noticed, but she had not attached any importance to, or sought to interpret the change in his deportment towards her. She treated him with careless frankness and smiling courtesy, but far from suspecting that she was encouraging his passion, she was unconscious of its existence. He often solicited her to sing, under the pretense of watching the effect produced by her voice upon his patient. Formerly, when she sang, she had felt inspired by the music alone, seeing and hearing nothing that passed around her, raised above all sublunary recognition, falling into a heavenly trance through her delight in concord of sweet sounds. Now her abstraction was even deeper, but different. She no longer appeared to herself to have no auditor. True, she lost sight of the elegant and refined young man, sitting in silent admiration by her side, of the pallid invalid upon the bed yonder, whose face wore an expression of such hearkening gladness, of the attenuated shape hovering near, whose wan visage caught some faint reflection from the sick man's joy-illumined countenance, of the misshapen form that stood at the foot of the couch, leaning eagerly forward with parted lips and dilated eyes, yet she imagined to herself one lister, ever absent, yet ever present. She sang as though he always heard, and the fervor that gave such thrilling emphasis to her voice grew wholly out of the vivid reality of that ideal presence. Ursule, whose qualifications as nurse were of an indisputably high order, was less frequently in the room than might have been expected. The cause of her absence became apparent before the evening set apart for the concert arrived. That morning, Sylvie had taken out the muslin dress, 
which she had thrice worn in public, and was dismayed to find it covered with mud and stained with the dye of the old black mantle which had been saturated in her walk through the rain. In sore distress, she had lain the dress upon the bed and stood pondering upon the possibility of getting it washed and ironed before the evening when Ursule appeared. Assuming a matter-of-course air, the latter deliberately removed the discolored muslin and substituted a dress of rich white silk, adorned with three overskirts of white illusion, and placed beside the dress a scarf-like white sash, a pair of satin slippers, and kid gloves. Maitre Bourgeau had charged her to spare no expense in selecting an appropriate attire for Sylvie, and the last few days had been occupied by Ursule in its preparation. Sylvie was expressing by lively pantomimic gestures her gratitude for the thoughtful kindness of her master and her approval of Ursule's choice when Dame Manot burst into the apartment carrying a box addressed to Mademoiselle de la Roche. It was left for you by a servant of Marquis de Saint-Omar, said the concierge, her eyes sparkling with kindly curiosity. Sylvie's hands trembled as she received the package, and she placed it on the table unopened. Ursule, with ready tact, diverted the attention of the dame by severing the ribbon which secured the cover and raising the lid. First she took out a note in Honorine's handwriting. Sylvie opened it with ill-disguised agitation. A layer of fresh moss was next removed. Beneath it lay a coronal of white camellias, and a cluster of the same pure flowers formed into a breast-knot. Honorine's note said that she was counting the hours which must elapse before night arrived, and she could hear and see her beloved Sylvie, and bade her wear these floral tokens upon her brow and on her bosom in remembrance of the unchanging friendship of Honorine de St. Amar. Sylvie hardly glanced at the snowy wreath and bouquet, but while Ursule and Dame Manot rapturously expatiated upon their beauty, turned away to prepare a cooling draught for her father. By and by, Ursule closed the box and set it aside, and Sylvie never once lifted the lid until it was time to commence her toilette for the concert. To refuse the request of Mademoiselle de Saint-Amar would be to lack courtesy. When Sylvie was robed in the chaste white silk, with its transparent tulle drapery floating like a woven mist around her, Ursule silently placed the Camilla crown upon the singer's shining black hair and fastened the spotless bouquet on her bosom. Her fragile form had somewhat rounded and expanded since her illness. She looked less girlish than she had last appeared before an audience. She seemed to have lived years in a few months. The repose of her manner had once emanated from unconsciousness of self, now it sprang from self-reliance. The shadow that lingered in her eyes, once so cloudless, told that some grief lay hidden beneath its calm surface, and sent up its reflection out of the mysterious depths 
into that cerulean haven yet she was so completely queen over herself that there was something in her presence which impressed others as regal when her toilette was complete she bent over her father clinging to the hope that he would recognize her but he gazed into her face with a vacant stare and talked on in an unconnected and scarcely comprehensible strain in vain she covered his hands with kisses and passed her fingers softly through his hair and laid her flower-crowned head upon his bosom her caresses were unnoticed a few months ago she would have wept but since she had struggled in fierce combat with herself since she had known a sorrow which she was forced to bury in the deep recesses of her spirit tears sprang less readily their sweet relief was checked by a self-control that bade her suffer without sign her mother was sitting at the head of the bed looking less listless than was her wont the actual danger of her husband whom she truly loved had forced her to shake off her constitutional apathy had made her forget to complain of imaginary or anticipated afflictions and had caused her to inwardly vow that she would encounter poverty privation all manner of calumnies without murmur if her husband's life were only spared she regarded sylvie's evening toilette with a half smile and said and so you are wearing at last the white silk dress of which your poor father's extravagance once deprived you it becomes you amazingly and that tall overdress has a charming effect i hardly know you sylvie i had no idea you had altered so much in a few months sylvie embraced her but quickly turned again to her father she could not bear to leave him thus maitre bourgeot found her bending over the sick man pertinaciously essaying to attract his attention her master addressed her somewhat more brusquely than had been his custom of late but his rough manner was only a mask to conceal his agitation without one syllable of laudatory comment upon her striking appearance he remarked that her tablets were not in her girdle and rated ursule for forgetfulness as though all responsibility devolved upon her the omission was quickly supplied and the exquisitely wrought chain of gold to which the tablets were attached lying upon the hueless raiment and the blue enamel cover with one word traced in pearls just visible above the belt gave so much character and significance to the speechless maiden's attire that maitre bourgeot deserved credit for taste as well as forethought when sylvie and her master entered the little retiring room of the salle saint cecile the youthful vocalist was warmly welcomed by monsieur legrand but coldly greeted by those of his corps who dreaded that their own lesser lights might suffer eclipse through this transcendent luminary monsieur legrand had taken care that the rumour of her reappearance should be widely spread together with the history of her loss of voice the sudden and wonderful manner in which her power of song was regained while she continued mute as regarded speech the public had marvelled sympathized rushed to the salle saint cecile crowded it to suffocation and being stimulated into high excitement by the novelty of the occasion were now ready to be astonished 
and enraptured by talents far inferior to those with which sylvie had been endowed monsieur legrand who thoroughly understood how to create the greatest impression upon the sensibilities of the mass instead of letting sylvie sing a number of airs had announced her only for handel's celebrated anthem but thou didst not leave his soul to be given towards the close of the performance the audience inferred that he feared she might be suddenly stricken dumb in singing as in speaking and were on the kivi to witness the possible calamity on the same principle a crowd will throng a theatre to see some desperate mortal earn his hard bread by making a perilous leap which some night will probably cost him his life or to behold a man's head in a lion's mouth the frightful fascination arising from the chances that it will eventually be snapped off sylvie's tumultuous greeting from the expectant crowd when she was led forth by maitre bougeot who claimed that privilege may readily be imagined those human waves rose and sank and rose again and roared and grew still and roared again until the hall seemed filled with a living sea of humanity stirred by simultaneous motion and endowed with one voice that motion an earthquake that voice a thunderpeal several moments elapsed before silence was restored and maitre bougeot commenced the prelude with the first notes that broke in ringing richness from sylvie's lips the clamour burst forth anew with redoubled furor and so completely drowned her voice that she was obliged to cease singing maitre bougeot also stopped playing yet not by this vociferous welcome was sylvie moved though she trembled until her cloud-like drapery resembled a soft white mist stirred by light zephyrs honorine and her brother occupied seats directly in front of her one flashing look and her eyes did not turn in that direction again they were lifted up above the ocean of human heads and whatever they beheld was but an air-painted image once more the loud cries of welcome and congratulation died away and once more sylvie's voice like the trumpet that takes the low note of a viol that trembles and triumphing breaks on the air with its solemn and clear rang out as full as a trumpet as low and sweet as a viol trembling and triumphing solemn and clear almost before the breathless stillness at the conclusion of the anthem was broken by new rapture sylvie bent and passed from the sight of the spectators then ensued vehement efforts to recall her but they were futile monsieur legrand knew that the desire to hear her hereafter would be heightened by the refusal of an encore his congratulations to sylvie were accompanied by a petition that she would engage to join his corps for one year to sing wherever on the continent or in great britain he might require receiving five hundred francs per week and her travelling expenses 
Sylvie had no hesitation in accepting this apparently munificent offer, but referred Monsieur Legrand to her tutor, and Maitre Bougeot expressed himself contented with the proposition. "'I will call upon Mademoiselle de la Roche tomorrow morning,' said Monsieur Legrand. "'She can sign the contract, and the affair will be closed.' Bougeot knew that it would not be politic to allow a person in Legrand's position to witness Sylvie's poverty and the humble manner in which her family lived. He therefore objected to the proposed visit, urging as a reason that Monsieur de la Roche was dangerously ill. Legrand regarded him suspiciously, as though he inferred that the musician meant by this demure to make difficulties and finally demand higher terms. Bougeot, comprehending his look, replied with some asperity and no little dignity, "'In objecting to your calling upon my pupil tomorrow, at the risk of disturbing her father and thus distressing her, I found no fault with your proposition.' I should have told you frankly if I had done so. If pen and paper are at hand, the contract can as well be drawn up and signed tonight before we leave the hall. The necessary writing materials were speedily procured. The contract was duly prepared, signed, and witnessed. A copy was then made, to which also signatures were attached. One paper was delivered to Sylvie, the other kept by Monsieur Lagrand. The young singer was formally bound to follow her profession in whatever locality he directed for the next year. The time occupied by this business transaction allowed the crowd to disperse. Dr. Suvestra, as Mademoiselle de la Roche's physician, had gained admission to the retiring room, and while Monsieur Lagrand was arranging some minor matters with Bougeot, entertained Sylvie by repeating the economums he had overheard. Sylvie had cherished a hope that, as she passed in the street, she would meet Honorine. Honorine was all she said to herself. It was near the entrance of the Salle Saint-Cécile that she had encountered her once before. As the youthful vocalist came forward, leaning upon Bougeot's arm, and with Dr. Suvestra on the other side earnestly talking to her, she scarcely dared to lift her eyes. From beneath her long lashes, however, she soon saw there was but one carriage waiting. It was that which Bougeot had engaged. The equipage of the Marquis was not visible. Honorine had been carried off by Madame de la Tour, who probably had accompanied her to the concert for this very purpose. Sylvie looked up with a disappointed expression. A tall and stately form emerged from the shadow thrown by the building and appeared to be approaching her, but the figure did not pause, as seemed its first intention. The hat, lifted in passing, showed the intellectual countenance of the Marquis de Saint-Amar. He did not speak a single word, and Sylvie felt as every true artist, who is also a true woman, must have felt that, unpraised by the man she loved, all praise was breath only, and the triumph so glorious in the eyes of the great world 
was unsatisfactory, incomplete in her own eyes. End of chapter 14